Welcome to episode 33. You could call this um, My Adventures of an Outlaw Biography Part 2, I suppose. I decided to say more about one of my books, A Private Life of Michael Foote, because of some things that were said on Facebook about biography, one person in particular who had questions about dealing with the families of your subject. When should you uh, contact them? You know, how do you handle them? And so on. Um, Families can be a great, great help to the biographer. Uh, Certainly the biography, uh, the families of Walter Brennan and Rebecca West and Dana Andrews, for example, were extremely helpful to me. And I was fortunate in that in no way did they try to interfere with my biography. But as to the question of when uh, you contact the family and how, it really is a uh, a case-by-case basis as to how you perceive the family dynamics. And maybe you should take some time to think about that before you try to contact anybody. I know that if you're doing a biography of a figure who has family that you want to interview or to get their cooperation, you may be tempted to write them right away. Uh, I would hesitate to do that uh, unless there's some urgency about, you know, a family member uh, that you you really need to reach right away, perhaps for reasons of age or uh, getting a publisher's contract and so on to say that you have the cooperation of the family. I understand all that. Uh, Generally, I haven't worked that way because I know that even when you get the cooperation of a family or of a family member or of a literary executor, and even if you get that cooperation in writing, there's no guarantee that by the end of the project you still have that cooperation. Now, of course, if you have it in writing, you can go ahead, which is what Martin Duberman did when he wrote his biography of Paul Robeson. The son was very, very keen and uh, glad that Duberman was doing it, but by the end, there was a falling out. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of one falling out, which is with uh, Michael Foote, um, leader of the British Labour Party, uh, who lost to Margaret Thatcher quite resoundingly. But he was a literary figure. He was editor of the London Evening Standard. I've said some of these things about him in previous podcasts, and I've said a little bit about my book, A Private Life of Michael Foote, but I want to go into it in more detail. Uh, And I can't say that I had some kind of grand strategy in dealing with him. I can't even say that I always did the right thing in certain circumstances as I look back on it. And I can't say that if I had to do it all over again, I would do it much differently. Given my nature and the nature of the circumstances, I'm not sure that that much much could have changed if I had operated differently. Um, So let me go back to the beginning. Uh, I contacted Michael uh, after his wife, Jill Craigie, died. Uh, This was in 2000. And uh, I wanted to do a biography of her. Um, She was a British documentary filmmaker. She was a very active journalist. She was writing a book on mammoth, epic book on um, votes for women, which she never finished. She came within a couple of chapters of finishing it. I knew her and I knew Michael because they were friends of Rebecca West, who uh, I interviewed them in the mid-1990s. 
And I wrote to him uh, and uh, was waiting for a reply and gave him my phone number in the letter and he called me and said, you're the one to do it. Uh, And in March 2000, I uh, showed up at Pilgrim's Lane in Hampstead where he had a house. And one of the first things he said is, it's your book. In other words, he wasn't going to interfere. He had done biographies. He had done a two-volume biography of Anurin Bevan, Nye Bevan as he was called, the founder of the National Health Service. And he understood, and in fact, he was a great admirer of my unauthorized biography of Martha Gellhorn. So that was marvelous. Um, My uh, agent at the time said, uh, it would be good if you got something in writing from Michael saying that, you know, the book will have your approval and and it's your book and so on. I wrote him such a letter uh, from a London hotel um, explaining what I want to do with the book and how it would be good to have encouraging words from him that the publisher could see. He never responded to that letter. And I never asked him about that letter. I decided to proceed anyway. Uh, His stepdaughter, Julie Hamilton, said to me at one point, you'll never get him to sign any kind of document. Whatever he says, however much access he gives you, he'll get his back up if you try to, you know, nail him with something in writing. I had never presented him with any kind of agreement. I simply had written that one letter thinking, well, maybe you know, voluntarily he will he will make such a declaration. Well, he never did. Um, on my first visit in March, besides talking to Michael Foote about the kind of book I wanted to do about his wife, Jill Craigie, I had an interview with uh, his stepdaughter, uh, Julie Hamilton, one of dozens of interviews I had with her. Um, We saw each other in all sorts of circumstances. Michael became suspicious. He thought I was having an affair with his stepdaughter. Well, I wasn't, but but we did become close friends for a while. And uh, Julie Hamilton was God's gift to biographers because she was indiscreet. Uh, And uh, it was just her nature. In fact, her mother, Jill, was, was indiscreet in some of the same ways and just blurting out things. And one of the things that Julie blurted out in a pub was that, uh, well, you know, some things you're not going to be able to say in this book. And I said, well, then I can't do the book because I'm not that kind of biographer. I'm not the keeper of the secrets. And she said, well, and she started telling me about this Pakistani woman. Much later, it was learned she wasn't Pakistani. She was Indian. Anyway, he had quite an affair with this woman. And Julie was sure that I would never be able to get him to talk about it. Or if I asked him about it, that might be the end of things. And I I simply said, you know, at the right moment, I'm going to ask him about it. And uh, I won't go ahead with the book. Uh, He said, it's my book, and I won't go ahead with it if he uh, won't talk about it. Well, I went ahead and I did the Joe Craigie book, and and I did write about this affair, and I did interview him about it, and I'm going to read to you from, from my interview with him in just a minute. In the course of doing... To Be a Woman, The Life of Jill Craigie, Julie Hamilton, again, Michael's stepdaughter, suggested to me that I do a biography of Michael. I can honestly say that had never occurred to me, at least consciously. I never thought of doing a biography of Michael. Why? 
Well, uh, it would have meant spending a lot, lot more time in England. As it was, I was spending a lot of time there, and that was difficult given my family situation and, and wanting to be home with my wife and two Scotties um, and very much enjoying where I lived. Um, I hesitated, and yet it seemed such a great opportunity. And if I haven't mentioned it already, when I came to London to deal with the, the Joe Craigie biography, I always stayed with Michael. It was an open invitation. Right from the beginning, he said, you have to stay. And it made sense, too, because all of her papers were in the house, uh, not only in her study, but in their bedroom and all sorts of places. They would just throw things in drawers or uh, books would be tossed into um, uh, letters, rather, would be tossed into books. And I'd take the books down the shelf and find these letters. The manuscript of her unfinished uh, Votes for a Woman book, which she called Daughters of Dissent, was in her office. Uh, a diary, a sporadic diary she kept, was in her office. It was all there. Um, anyway, uh, I did finally say to Michael, well, it's been suggested that maybe I could do your biography. There had been one biography of Michael by... Um, Mervyn Jones, and uh, there w I knew there would be others. I thought I could bring something unique, knowing him. Uh, Mervyn also was a good friend of Michael's. Um, he wasn't averse to it. He wasn't enthusiastic about it. He was much more enthusiastic about my doing a biography of his wife, but he, he didn't say no. Uh, he tacitly said yes, yes, if you want to do that, we can think about that, but he, he really was focused on Jill. Uh, I'm going to get to uh, why that never happened. I never wrote a conventional biography of Michael Foote. A lot of it had to do not with writing about his affair, and he had more than one, uh, but the, ma the, the main affair that almost broke up the marriage with uh, the so-called Pakistani, actually Indian woman, who I call Lamia in the book, although the Daily Mail has since outed her. We know who, who she is. A um, couple things happened. Michael got very unhappy with my treatment of his marriage. Um, he comes across in some ways as a very selfish person, which I think is true, uh, and which I could co corroborate in a number of different ways, as I do in, in the book I wrote, A Private Life of Michael Foote. He was really upset about that. Uh, I made a few minor modifications, but it, it wasn't really enough to satisfy him. But he did nothing to stop the book. But at the same point, he didn't do what he had sort of, again, tacitly suggested that he would help promote the book. He didn't help promote the book, but he didn't, he didn't oppose it uh, in any public way. He did write letters protesting uh, my treatment of his marriage, letters to me, not to others. Um, well, what happened was, after that, a well-known uh, British biographer, uh, someone who had known Jill and known Michael, proposed to do a biography of Michael Foote. And the last time I saw Michael, in fact, when he was, I already knew he was upset about some parts of my biography of his wife, he said to me, uh, there was going to be this other biography. And he said quite emphatically, and I would say even brutally, that cuts you out. I'll never forget those words. And I thought, well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. 
And it took me a while. We're going back to around um, 2003. I had all of these hours and hours of Michael Foote uh, recorded. Uh, maybe a hundred hours. I've never counted them up. And many hours of other people talking about Michael. Because you couldn't talk about Joe without talking about Michael. She devoted the last portion of her life uh, really almost entirely to him. And so he was a big part of the story. Uh, and I realized I could do a Boswell biography, a Boswellian biography, by dealing with the interaction, my interactions with Michael, personal interactions, but also interactions as a biographer. And that I could place you in the moment, uh, in a kind of immediacy that uh, is hard to duplicate in biographies. Um, if you hear a bird chirping, by the way, that's because I'm in my woodland studio and I've got the window open. It happens to be a quite, quite a warm day in southern New Jersey. Hear it? I don't know if you could pick that up or not. You might also hear a few flies buzzing. So I'm going to read to you a few sections of the book because it will show you um, a biographer at work. And it is about dealing with family. Uh, that is, you know, I, I started this podcast with saying, when you approach somebody, when do you talk to somebody, uh, a family member, about very intimate things? Uh, and how are they going to react to that? What do you say? Now, what I'm reading to you occurred in September of 2000 which means this scene occurred only the second out of nine visits to England. This is only the second, very early on in the biography, because I made a decision. I thought, well, I'm not going to get to the end of my period with Michael and bring up things which might upset him or things he won't talk about or things that will turn him against me. I've got to... Uh, find some way to get to that material much, much sooner so I can have him live with it, absorb the questions I ask him, and not be shocked that we went, you know, two or three years along the way and then suddenly, so to speak, I lower the hammer. So this is from section 30 of A Private Life of Michael Foote. Even though I was staying with Michael whenever I came to London, I found it hard to have him entirely to myself. At home, there was always a housekeeper, many calls, and visitors. So I was delighted when Emma said she was going out shopping. She was the housekeeper then. I've changed her name, actually. Have you got everything you need, she asked me. I do, I said. I have my man. Michael, who often missed parts of a conversation, asked, What's he got? I repeated Emma's question and my answer. Ah, Michael said. I don't think he understood that I was leading up to something. I started out in as disarming a fashion as possible. I'm going to tell you what I think of Jill's book, I told him. This is Daughters of Descent, the book about votes for women. I told him how impressed I was with the writing, and I still am. The book has never been published. Although the book was not complete, Jill had done a good deal of revising as she went along. 
I then began to discuss autobiographical aspects of the book, passages that dealt with wives of politicians and women with homes and careers. This, of course, is exactly Jill herself. I read Michael a passage where Jill expressed her regret that biographers had so little to say about their subjects' private lives. And I'm quoting Jill now. Consequently, we are left with the impression that the faucets, involved in votes for women, the faucets were rare specimens who knew nothing of personal tests and fluctuating emotions. Clearly, much more was happening beneath this artificial surface. Those are Jill's words, which I was reading to Michael. And I say to him, Jill is raising the question of what biography is. Yes, he answered. Listening to the tape recording of his response now, I seem to detect the faintest note of resignation in his voice. You bet she is, Michael said. I commented on the reticence of Victorian biography, in particular the trouble Froude encountered, this is James Anthony Froude, the biography of Carlyle, the, uh, the, the reticence Froude encountered when he attempted to be candid. Michael broke in with, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, he made Jane Welsh in effect uh, right, I suppose. Jane Welsh, uh, Carlyle's wife, uh, complained about Carlyle. Uh, and Michael could see the point of why she complained. People often compared, by the way, Michael Foote and Joe Craigie with Carlyle and Jane Welsh uh, because they were a team in so many ways, and they had the same sort of give-and-take uh, dialogues between them that the Carlyles had. The difference is that after Jill's death, Michael did not respond the way Carlyle did. Carlyle responded with remorse. Reading Froude, he suddenly realized in, how, in, in some ways how terribly he had treated Jane. When Michael read my account, and Michael was not as certainly hard on Jill as Carlyle was on Jane, nevertheless, Michael couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear the idea that somehow there had been a problem with his marriage. I took a breath. I'm reading from my book again. I took a breath and said, I have enormous admiration for Jill, and I think this long-standing marriage you had is a wonderful story, absolutely wonderful, but people are not going to want a re to read a saint's life. Everybody has faults, to which Michael Foote says just, yes. The word was drawn out rather meditatively. I think he knew where I was going. CR. What got me thinking about this passage, the one I just read to him, then I came across a little book in Jill's study. MF, huh? CR. The book is called Odd Reflections. I don't know if you know that Jill kept this book. MF, no. Michael never looked at Jill's stuff. I mean, he read her book, Daughters of Descent, but I mean, he didn't go through looking for letters or things about her. He was remarkably incurious. She had two previous marriages. He knew very little about those. I told him, it's a kind of diary. I read one of her statements. We are creatures of habit. That is why it is fatal to permit a husband to prolong an affair. To which Michael responds, yeah. 
I say, nothing will convince me, I'm reading again from Joel's diary, nothing will convince me that life has anything better to offer than a marriage in which both partners rate each other's welfare and happiness of supreme importance. Give or take a few adulterous moments. That's Jill. I read another of Jill's statements. Here's another one. Marriage is like democracy. It may not work, but no one has thought of a better system. To which Michael says, yeah. I read again from Jill's diary, her odd reflections. Nothing destroys a relationship so much as disloyalty. Infidelity is not necessarily incompatible with loyalty. End of quotation from Jill. That's an interesting one, Michael, I say to him. Michael says, huh? I say, this is something Jenny Lee, that was Nye Bevan's wife, is supposed to have said, and I'm quoting Jenny Lee, love may be deaf, dumb, and blind, but it can count. To which Michael says, yes, that's pretty amazing. She was obviously, and then his voice sort of trails off. Or rather, I foolishly cut Michael off before he could finish the sentence, eager to tell him that I had read in Jill's correspondence that Michael had discovered some poetry Bevan, Nye Bevan, had written to a woman he loved before he knew Jenny. Jill wondered how Jenny would react to the poems when she learned about them. How did Jenny react? I asked Michael, Nye Bevan's wife. How does she react to these uh, poems that I wrote to another woman before he married Jenny. Here's what Michael says. I showed it. He showed the proofs of his book, including the story of Nye's affair and poetry. He showed them to to Jenny, the, the wife. Michael says she didn't want it in. She said, if you put that in, it will be sensationalized. And she was quite right about that. If I had included it, the press would have been around, around to the woman who was alive. I went to see her and she wanted it in because it was the truth. I dare say Jenny also wanted it out because she didn't want any rival. It's not of great importance from your point of view. Except it was. This is what I was getting at. Of course it was important. Important to the biographer. And what is a biographer to do? Um, Paul Foote, Michael's nephew, and several other family members and friends of Michael said to me, if you put in this stuff about Michael's affairs, the press will have a field day with it. Well, what can I say? I'm writing a whole life of somebody. I'm supposed to simply be bound by what the press is going to say for a book that I hope will last more than a newspaper article? I couldn't see it. But Michael had done this. He had taken out this story in his own biography of uh, Nye Bevan. Michael had done exactly what I could not, put his book into the hands of another to censor. I'm reading again from A Private Life of Michael Foote. Michael now knew where I was headed. I'm not saying, of course, that you should sometime about my, and he chuckled, relations with Jill. Some of those remarks she made, and he trails off again, I have not excised any of his words. He was stumbling into the new ground I had broken, and I was just as hesitant to plow ahead. But as Michael went about how Jenny had become the love of Nye's life, I saw my opportunity slipping away. Michael was, in effect, justifying his addition, his 
decision to abide by Jenny's wishes, that is to take out the other woman. But then Michael broached the subject of adultery, although he didn't use the word. He says, one of the necessities for people maintaining decent relations is that they shouldn't know about such things if they happen. Yes, I said, cutting him off with another statement from Odd Reflections. I'm quoting Jill again. Nye Bevan said that affairs should be clandestine, but that didn't stop him from making a pass at me. That is at Jill, Michael's wife. It didn't stop Nye, uh, stop him making a pass at me in a car in a traffic jam in the middle of Hyde Park Corner, to which Michael laughed. Well, that's it, you see, that's true. Nye didn't want Jenny to know he did have affairs. One was with Sonia Orwell after Orwell's death. Then Michael was off, expatiating on the subject of how badly biographers had treated Sonia, who had become Jill's friend as well as his. Finally, Michael came to a full stop. He tried to begin again. We, uh, and then I said, in writing nice biography, you are right to include, Michael says, well, I say the story about the woman. I understand Jenny Lee's point about sensationalizing. The press does that. It's unavoidable. Michael Foote, the Daily Mail. Now, this is funny because eventually the D Daily Mail picked up the stuff that I said uh, in my biography of Joe Craigie and then later of Michael Foote. Michael says, the Daily Mail, the way they deal with these things, it's even worse now. They're less restrained than they would have been then. The newspapers had old scores to settle against him. That is against Nye Bevan. And they had scores, of course, to settle against Michael Foote, this, what they considered this Labor Party radical. Now, I called them the most prostituted press in the world. He was bitterly opposed to the way they, in, they intruded into these matters. <coughs> Excuse me. I say, did you consider changing the woman's name, Michael? Well, no. In the original proof, I had her name because the woman wanted her story told. I was just beginning to grasp that Michael's first loyalty was not to biography, but to friends and to anyone else whom a given biography might hurt. And this is what you have to think about when you deal with your subject's uh, family, is where the loyalties lie. Are the loyalties really to telling the truth as the biographer sees it about the subject? Or does the biographer become part of the family's program for posterity, so to speak. And again, I was lucky with Rebecca West, with Dana Andrews, with Walter Brennan. Uh, the family did not interfere. They did not feel possessive about their family member. Michael went on to tell me that he and Jill had vowed never again to rile Jenny after Michael's row with Nye over unilateral dis disarmament. This was a huge fight they had. For, um, Michael was for unilateral disarmament, and Nye was not. And this occurred in Michael's home at, at a point at which Nye Bevan actually broke a chair in anger uh, about it uh, and called Michael names. And I go on to talk about you know, Michael's attitude toward men and the passes they make at women. Michael made his sure passes, that's for sure. Uh, and then uh, I'm reading again from uh, A Private Life of Michael Foote. To my surprise, Michael said, let's come back to my relations with Jill. Of course, we had some tensions too, some upsets too, and it wasn't all plain sailing throughout or anything like it. I did some things that she didn't approve of, 
some of those remarks there he's referring to in Odd Reflections. I said, well, I have to ask you about that. This is the hard part. I have to ask you about what happened, what she didn't like. Michael Foote said, yeah, you have to. He lowered his voice. I said, Joe made a comment once in a newspaper interview. Uh, somehow the question of marriage and fidelity and adultery came up, and Jill, all Jill said was, Michael is very secretive, and whatever he's done, I'd rather not know about it. Michael says, that's right. But I say, the problem is, I said to him, is I feel I have to know. And I laughed when I said that. Michael just muttered, uh-huh, uh-huh. I say, it's difficult because this is going to be an enormously sympathetic book. Michael says, yes. But because it's so sympathetic, I say, no, you, Michael says, you see where I'm headed, I say. I don't want people to simply say, well, he really didn't do the whole life. He just presented the good aspects. Michael Foote, no, of course not. You must ask. I'll think of the answer. He was starting to slide away. Uh, and I say, then I have no problem when I write the book. I want you to see it. I want it to be accurate. I know you told me it's my book. Michael Foote, yes. At the same time, it is, as I said, your life. There may be things in it the way I write. Michael Foote says, yes, I know. I made a mistake because I said to Mervyn, it's your book. We'll come to this, Carl. I'll tell you some of the rows we had. Whether I can do, do it just at this moment, I'm not quite sure. Of course, you can do something that is misleading. No point in writing a book at all in that case. That's just the faintest beginning of what he would later say. Oh, you've got it wrong, especially when I discussed his marriage. I went on to tell him, I deal with the fact that I'm interviewing other people and they tell me things. I don't want to be in a position of hearing all these things and not being able to ask you. Michael says, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I say, certainly from talking to various people who knew you and Jill, and also I can tell from reading this little book, I'm referring again to Odd Reflections, and I can now hear the stress and the sound of my voice, I say to him, there had to have been some adultery. That's where Michael Foote says, when I say there had to have been some adultery, The next thing you read in A Private Life of Michael Foote is, after the word adultery, the silence, as they say, was deafening. The orchestra of sound that usually emanated from Michael cut out. And I sort of trail off, which is, I tell him, which I know is really hard to talk about. Michael says, uh, well, we were sitting on the second floor with Michael reclining on a couch. I was in an upright chair, my tape recorder perched on a fold-out desk to my right. Michael gazed upward, apparently lost in thought. I looked down, anywhere but at his face. As we sat there, I decided that rather than press him again with words, I would just simply wait to see how he would respond. For nearly four minutes, he did not say a word. After about 90 seconds, his customary mumbling returned, and nearing the four-minute mark, I felt like a swimmer underwater wanting to come up for air, 
He seemed to pull himself together, drawing in his breath. Now, remember, this was all recorded, so I was able actually to time this after the fact. He paused another few seconds, this is after four minutes, and then said, Two or three of the women are alive. One or two are not. Uh, let me just think about this. I say, I know. Michael Foote says, I know I must talk to you about it. I say, I want to do this sensitively. I'm not even sure how much of this gets into the book. Michael Foote says, I understand. I say, the idea of the whole story, to me, it is a magnificent story. I don't want it to get less magnificent. Michael Foote, I know you don't, but I'm, I just must think about it. I say, yes. Michael Foote says, do it properly. After two minutes of silence, Michael said, so I'll think about it. I don't want to do it now. I don't think so, but I must sometime, of course. It's, uh, I did not know how to end this session, so I continued. Michael, I know you don't want to talk about this now, but Jill has a whole page here in Odd Reflections about secretaries. I'm quoting Jill. The most sinister of all relationships is that between a husband and his secretary. A secretary has more power over a man than his wife. The subservience of secretaries is disgusting. That's Jill. Michael Foyt, subservience, she said. And I say, was one of the women you were involved with a secretary? And Michael Foyt immediately says, not Una. Now, Una was the secretary that was still working for him, who he did he did not have an affair with, and he didn't, he didn't want her compromised. I had heard much talk of Una, but never met her. She had been Michael's last full-time secretary. She died before I could meet her. He was still going to see her, but I didn't go with him on those visits. Like many of the women who worked with Michael, she had formed a very strong attachment to him, although in this case not a sexual one. And I say, but one was, that is, a secretary. One was, yes, that was Elizabeth, that is Elizabeth Thomas, who, who later was interviewed by the Daily Mail after my book came out. She's still alive. And then he goes on to say, a man may be in love with two women at the same time. And that's what I was. One of the reasons I was interested in Swift was because he was in love with both Vanessa and Stella. I was quite sure. Otherwise, the poems are absolutely terrible. That's where I got the Vanessa name from. One of the names of one of his dogs was Vanessa. When Julie gave us a, a dog, we called her Vanessa. I don't say that Jill approved of all that, but she understood what I was saying. Swift was more advanced about women than most people thought. This is Michael. It is a beautiful story, in my opinion. Now, he was secretive. If he hadn't been, the whole thing would have been bust up much earlier. So when Jill talks about secret, well, I use the word about Swift, too, you see. And I say, this is what will make the book come alive. Your books have this intellectual, but they also have this emotional. That's what a biography is. That's wonderful. I was coming to the point of diminishing returns as Michael launched his lecture on Swift, happily remembering his father's suggestion that Michael write a book about Swift's arrival in London. And I did, Michael said uh, triumphantly. This is a fine book of his called The Pen and the Sword. Okay, so we, we went on to talk a little bit, but he didn't go into detail about the affairs. That comes later in the book. That, that comes in uh, uh, 
Section 37 of A Private Life of Michael Foote. Um, actually, I'm not going to read this to you. Um, but he, he went into detail. He, he, he talked about all the women in his lives. Um, the main one was a character that I, I call Lamia, who's still alive, by the way. Uh, who was most upset. Jill, Jill, in fact, was so upset at one point that she left for Venice, which was the famous holiday spot that she and Michael went to over many times. Uh, he was very upset about that. Well, here's the irony of dealing with families, and uh, in this case, dealing also with a living subject. Michael's not alive now, but he was very much alive then. Um I said that he was angry about his my treatment of his marriage. My very last visit, April 2003, was so fraught. Um, I didn't turn on the tape recorder. Um, you'll see what happened. Uh, and this surprised me a bit. That is, not that I thought he would approve of my treatment of the marriage, but, well, you'll see. I did not take the last face-to-face -face meeting about the biography. This is April 2003. Going in, I knew how fraught it would be, and somehow I thought the tape recorder would add to the tension. Instead, as soon as I arrived at Philadelphia Airport, so I'm doing this even in the book, retrospectively, instead, as soon as I arrived at Philadelphia Airport, I asked my wife, Lisa Paddock, to drive home so that I could recount into my tape recorder how I had seen Michael unravel. This was vital, since so much of the account I had established had been formed of testimonials, that failing to add my own of this pivotal moment would have served as an injustice to the uncensored portrait of the private man. And that's, of course, what my book is called, A Private Life of Michael Foote. I had been striving to present this view of the private man Reflecting on the scene, I said, now this is me talking to my wife. I don't think he harbors anger exactly. Julie was getting back from Italy, that's his stepdaughter, and she called. Should I come and uh, get you to go over photographs? This is Julie asking me. I said, well, I can't do that because Jenny, now Jenny Stringer's no longer alive. She was Michael's minder. She was always very suspicious of me. We were friendly. Uh, and I conducted a sort of an interview with her, but she was very close-lipped, and she was very much protect protective of the Labor Party icon. So I said, and also, Jenny and Julie hated each other, um, which made for an interesting dynamic for a biographer interviewing both of them and trying to cross-reference and corroborate what each of them said. Well, I can't, that is, I can't go over the photographs I was telling her on the phone because Jenny is coming over and we're going to talk about the book. She said, maybe I should be there. I said, I think it's in my interest and yours that you are. I didn't say this to Michael. I wanted to avoid sitting down with him and Jenny and then having to go to Julie and have to explain it all again. This is what they don't like, I thought. Um... And I thought, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to run back and forth between condemning parties. Just let them have it all out around the table. This is the table in Michael Foote's Hampstead home. So Julie came, 
And Michael started reading this one passage where Julie says to me, have you ever seen Michael's anger? That's when he went ballistic. Because Julie says, uh, sorry, Julie says, Jill was frightened of his anger. That's when he went ballistic. This is Michael speaking. This is outrageous. Leave the house. He says this to Julie. Julie sat there, kept her composure. She said quietly, I'm quoting her here. I just said she was, he shouts, she wasn't afraid of my anger. We never had any quarrel. He went on and on in a rage. And Jenny kept saying, maybe I should go. Maybe I should go. I, me, just sat there and then said, this is what I said to Michael. Michael, Ursula Owen, friend of Michael's, um, described how frightening your anger could be. Well, that was somehow a different matter he, matter, he indicated. The thing that really offended me was at one point he was in such a rage, he said, we're discussing a passage in my book, Julie's testimony. At one point, Michael says in a rage, this is coming out. And I wanted to say to him, Michael, I thought this was my book. Well, it's coming out because Julie said, it's, said to Michael, well, if you feel that strongly about it, this is Julie speaking, take it out. She didn't take back what she said. I didn't see why she should. It took him about two days to calm down. I told Lisa about my meeting with Jenny and her efforts to get me to cut out the Lamia story, the affair. Jenny would work on Michael, I predicted. In a few months, I expected to hear from him that he wanted the Lamia chapter out of the biography. Indeed, Paul Foote, this is Michael's nephew, sent me a letter demanding that the Lamia chapter go. Here's where the whole family comes in with the full court press. Michael then sent me letters demanding so many changes in the chapter. He didn't say the chapter should come out, but so many changes in the chapter that, in effect, the story was eviscerated. On that major issue, however, however, I would not budge, even when I got a call from Moni Foreman making the same demand. Now, Moni Foreman's a character in the book, a close friend of Jill's, um, married to Dennis Foreman, who at one time was head of the British Institute, um, who was also a film producer, um, uh, Indian woman um, who I got to know and was very fond of who was, who was also asking me, pleading with me really to, to take the chapter out of the book about Michael's affairs. I told Lisa, my wife, how Jenny muttered when I wrote, what I wrote was fiction. Yet in the end, she only demanded about a half a dozen corrections. Our further assault would come via the mail. Jenny wanted references to Barbara Castlecott because they might hurt her family, another prominent British politician and friend of Michael's. At one point, Michael demanded that I send him back my tape recordings, the very recordings which were used to make a private life of Michael Foote. I did not even reply to that request. I made further cosmetic changes, but stood firm on the rest. We were sitting in the garden, I told Lisa, about my last uh, after, afternoon with Michael at Pilgrim's Lane. And here's where we're getting to a scene which I have mentioned a little earlier in this podcast. We were, we were 
uh, at Pilgrim's Lane, sitting in the garden. And Michael says, well, Ken Morgan, Kenneth Morgan's doing my biography that cuts you out. It was that quick and that curt. No preamble and nothing afterwards. I think he's angry with you, Lisa said. I was certainly angry with him, I admitted. Uh, Lisa says, didn't you, did you sort of know it would go like this? And I said, how could it not? He's a politician. He wants to control everything. I told Lisa Michael was angry about the house money allowance. Uh, that There's a whole thing in the book about how he was very stingy with, with money for, for Jill and housekeeping. And Lisa says, he's angry about that? How small? Jenny had objected to my writing that Jill had reinvented herself before she met Michael. She just wanted to move on, Jenny said. How could Jenny know? Jenny didn't know Jill when Jill was 18 years old. I was writing about a period 30 years before the two women had met. Oh, man, Lisa said. Here's the last section of my book. On my last night at Pilgrim's Lane, Michael asked me to call him when I got home. He had no particular purpose in mind other than to be sure I got home safely. I think it was his effort to smooth things over. I didn't call him, but he phoned me, and we had a short, awkward conversation. We spoke only one other time when he called to say he was upset about the upcoming Daily Mail serialization of my biography. He hated the tabloid, calling it the Forger's Gazette. I told Michael I had no authority to stop the serialization, and I would not profit a penny from its publication. I had told the publisher that Michael would be upset, but the publisher could not resist the 10,000-pound payment the mail offered. I was square with Michael. I did not object to the publisher's decision. That's what I told him. We never spoke again. And that's that's the end of a, a private life with Michael Foote. Um, I didn't predict much of what, what happened. I didn't know that it would end that way, although in retrospect, I can see how it might. I mean... Um, there was almost a romance between uh, the two of us, uh, and I certainly don't mean anything sexual, but uh, he just, he was so pleased because Jill was not Rebecca West, she wasn't Martha Gellhorn, she wasn't as well-known, she wasn't as accomplished, although for me she was certainly a fascinating subject with accomplishments that the world needed to know about. He was so happy about that. Um, he also had fair warning, not only from me, and here again we're dealing with the family. Do you have allies in the family? Do you have what I like to call blockers uh, who can help you out? Are you cultivating them? Are you keeping in contact with them uh, just in case? Um, Julie had said to him at one point, when Carl, fin and this is long, long before uh, Michael read any any parts of the, uh, the biography of his wife, Jill. His stepdaughter said to Michael, she said, you know, when you read Carl's book, I'm not sure you're going to recognize <laughs> your, your, your marriage or your life. Um, and we were laughing about this, and Mike, Michael was just aghast. What, what are you talking about? He had no, no conception. Now, Julie... Uh, had a much sharper uh, understanding of what this whole biographical process was about. 
Uh, and that's why she was such a good source, not only for what she had to tell me specifically about my subjects, but because of her understanding of what a biography is. I mean, she was a real gift to me. I'll be forever grateful to him. And I'm going to end this podcast with with uh, what I said to Michael after Julie said, "You know, you won't you won't recognize your your Jill, you won't recognize when you read Carl's biography." And I said to the both of them, I said, "You know, maybe I should write this biography in two columns." Thanks for listening.